Have a dope day. Downloads of this show are available on Podomatic.com and the Podomatic mobile app. Okay, so welcome to the Truth to Power show in Radio Free Brooklyn. I'm your host, VJR Nathan, and with us today is Monica Mirchandani, who was born and raised in New York City and uh, knew early on that she wanted to pursue a career helping people. After spending a year post-college teaching 7th grade life science in Brooklyn, New York, the experience reaffirmed her decision to work with children uh, and become a doctor. Uh, since then, she has served in the U.S. military, U.S. Army, worked as a hosp- hospita- hospitalist, in a community hospital and currently works in a large nonprofit called um, the Children's Aid in New York City. She continues to serve the community and teach. Her personal hobbies include family, dancing, writing, traveling, and cooking. Welcome, Monica. Thank you, BJ. Thank you. So, um, why don't we start off with just by talking a little bit about medicine and your um, experience, how when you first started, what, what a little bit more about what uh, propelled you into the career. And what that what it means to you, what what kind of the impressions are, and you know what 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 the career had meant to you beginning. Yeah. Sure, I think when I was really young, um, I always knew I wanted to help people. I didn't know in what capacity, um, but I liked you know I liked being around children. I liked uh, when I was in high school, I volunteered at the hospital, and um, it wasn't so much the hospital environment that was exciting when you're like spending summer volunteering when you could be outside doing other things but it was more so the idea I really felt uh, gratified helping people you know even if I was pushing them around the hospital in a wheelchair 
or helping the nurse uh, put up some IV fluids. There was something that I found um, <clears throat> very, just very pulling for me. Um, I, you know, I just, <clears throat> I kind of knew it had to, my career at that point when I was 17, 18, I felt that I was falling into a career where I'd have to be hands-on um, and not sitting behind a desk um, and also helping people. And then from there, you know, I thought about uh, medicine and being pre-med. Um, I didn't want to be a nurse or a physician's assistant. Um, I was around people that were influencing me to go into medicine also. Um, and so in college, I uh, pursued a pre-med track, but I was also an English major um, because, you know, aside from all this, um, I really uh, have a creative side to me. Um, I enjoy dancing. I, I was a swimmer and a dancer growing up, and I love to write poems. And um, so I had, you know, a lot of different interests. Um, so in college, I decided to do pre-med and become an English major. And then after college, um, I really had to figure out which way, which direction I was going to go in. Uh, because the, you know, the, the route to becoming a doctor is very long and it's, it's not easy. So, um, I mean, like other, any other profession, you have to work really hard to get to the um, end point that you want. But um, I knew it was going to be very challenging for me. So um, after college, I decided, um, you know, I'll take a year off and figure it out for sure. And that's how I ended up in Brooklyn, um, becoming, you know, doing a t getting, <clears throat> pursuing um, teaching for a year. Uh, at that time, New York City had a big shortage of math and science teachers and, uh, you know, I was lucky enough that I knew someone at, at the Department of Board of Ed who helped me pretty quickly uh, get a position without having a teaching background or a master's in education. Uh, so I worked um, at a special magnet school in Brooklyn teaching seventh grade life science, and it was the, a lower socioeconomic population. Um, but I loved it. I found it, again, very rewarding. I liked the hands-on aspect. I liked the teaching. I found it very fulfilling working with children in this age group. And really, I just decided, do I want to go and pursue a master's in education and continue along this track, or do I want to go ahead um, and go to medical school? And I think that year just made me decide I wanted more. Yeah. So <laughs> I wanted, you know, to kind of really have a lot of autonomy and power and knowledge to be able to help this age group. Good, good. And uh, I understand you're, you're working on, you're conceiving of a memoir about uh, your time uh, spending the the army um, in Iraq. You talk a little bit about that experience and how you're conceptualizing writing about it. Yeah, sure. Well, you know, in med school, when I applied to med school, I at the very simultaneously applied for a military scholarship because at that time I needed the funding more than anything else. But I also loved traveling and I thought I would help people abroad. Um, so that's how I kind of got into the military. So after uh, my residency training in pediatrics, I started working for them full time in uniform. Um, so I owed them four years. Um, and of those four years, I deployed to Iraq for one year. Um, and it was just an incredible experience. So, yeah. you know, 10 years prior, I was in Brooklyn teaching seventh grade science. And 10 years later, I'm in Iraq, you know, um, saving soldiers lives and working with the Iraqi coalition forces. So it was a real big dichotomy there. Um, but it was a life-changing experience, and uh, it's, not, it's a very unique experience for me, um, having grown up in Staten Island, New York, being Indian-American, having parents who were immigrants, and no one else in my family. Not only were they not a doctor, but they weren't in the military. So these were all really 
new things that I was doing um, in terms of my family. Um, so I decided to write about it. I mean, a couple of years ago, I took some writing classes and um, I was told, you know, for a memoir, it's best to write years after the experience because you can really look back and reflect. So that's what I've been trying to work on, although it's a very slow process. Yeah, and um, let's talk a little bit about kind of like what the import of like the the, the balancing between uh, near your pediatric medication medicine and balancing of that and the and the kind of cases you get in Iraq or the kind of uh, pressures or you know what I mean like I was balancing your knowledge of medicine as well as living in the uh, army uh, culture and environment and how you kind of balance that. Um, sure. Yeah. <clears throat> So as it was, I was balancing a lot, I think, during that time. Um, like I said, coming from a big city like New York, moving to these smaller military duty stations like uh, Louisiana and then Iraq, later on um, uh, Virginia. Um, but the other part of that, uh, balancing my own sort of personal experiences, was, of course, balancing my professional experiences. And being a pediatrician and doing emergency medicine in a war zone is two completely different things again. Yeah. Um, I didn't see any, I saw a handful of pediatric patients when I was in Iraq, maybe about 10 trauma patients because, um, you know, <clears throat> although the U.S. was mostly there to help the Iraq, the U.S. Army was there to help stabilize the Iraqi coalition forces. And that was the, um, the Iraqi soldiers and the policemen. But of course, unfortunately, a lot of civilians get caught up in that, um, in a lot of those gunfires and attacks. And so we did see some women and children in the process, although not that many. Um, but my responsibility was uh, pretty much working at what we called a level two clinic, um, which is not like what you see on TV, like in Baghdad with like a big forward operation, operating hospital. It was a smaller setting in a smaller place, uh, a couple hours north of Baghdad, uh, near the... Um, Iranian border and we just basically saw the patients come in like the Iraqi mostly again Iraqis um, come in with gunshot wounds and so I was pretty much just expected to use my basic medical skills and triage them you know stabilize triage and stabilize them and decide if they are fit to go back to work or we have to monitor them for a little or I send them forward to the big hospital for um, an operation um, so again I didn't use any pediatrics um, as in children but <clears throat> what a lot of people don't realize is a lot of our uh, US soldiers our young soldiers are 18 19 so they fall in the pediatric range and I did see a lot of American soldiers as well um, so even though my majority of patients were Iraqis we had a handful I'd say about maybe 15 percent um, of American soldiers come come in and they would come in for daily problems colds rashes you know um earaches uh, sometimes they come in a lot of dehydration um skin infections a lot of diarrhea from from the environment there um and once in a while we'd get a gunshot wound for an american soldier um and you know unfortunately i did see some soldiers die as well um not that many but um you know that i did see um, so in terms of pediatrics, that's where like you could say my pediatric skills came in when I was, um, you know, dealing with the younger soldiers that were 18, 19, 20. Yeah. And it seems like uh, from some of your pre-interview questions, we talked, you talked a little bit about how the influences of um, your father on out-of-the-box thinking. 
So how that how that maybe you were able to draw from some of that out of the box thinking or some of that module of um, kind of being able to creatively problem solve and how maybe that influence of um, helped you with your day to day interactions in this environment, this high pressure environment, possibly. Yeah. Um, well, I think my dad, my dad's role in my life has been um, to kind of always push me to do things that weren't common. Um, <clears throat> he always used to tell me when I was younger, you know, uh, you should always be a leader and not a follower, um, you know, be the black sheep in the crowd. Um, and he would, you know, just do like interesting things. Like if we were um, at a, at a, I remember going to a fair when I was like 12, like some, you know, summer fair in Staten Island, a local fair. And we saw an Egyptian belly dancer and I was moved by her. I mean, I used to love dancing and I took a lot of dance lessons. So I just thought she looked awesome. Belly dancing. It was my first time seeing a belly dancer. So my dad pushed me physically, literally like took his hand and pushed me like in her direction and said, go talk to her. If you're interested, go talk to her, see how she did this. Maybe it's something you could do and pursue. And I don't think most, you know, dads would encourage, especially in the Indian community, um, their daughters to go become belly dancers. But his point was, you know, to do something that's different and follow your passion. Um, And so that's how I ended up, you know, just become, you know, becoming a doctor and joining the military. Not because my dad wanted me to or anyone in my family had done it, but really I was just following, going with the flow and following my intuition. And, um... I mean, in terms of being in Iraq and becoming a doctor, um, it's not that I have a day-to-day thought process that, I mean, maybe I do. Maybe a lot of my thinking is also maybe a little out of the box or um, extraordinary because of his influence on me. Um, But it's not like he's directly like the things he said, you know, affects how I'm going to treat a patient today or, you know, how I stabilized a soldier in Iraq. But um, the person I had become at that point um, was probably because of my dad. So a lot of my identity, I think, and choices that I made in life were from him. Yeah, I know you You talked a little bit about how your intuition or gut acts as a moral compass. So uh, if you talk a little bit about how kind of values and such that really drive you um, and how you're able to find a compass in this uh, sometimes, uh, um, you know, morally ambiguous terrain or maybe, I don't know how you view it, but maybe somewhat, somewhat, troublesome terrain you know finding a moral compass to be able to guide yourself and and others yeah well i believe that um and this is my own thought um but i believe that you know following things that fulfill you or you know attracting things that fulfill you and make you happy um is sort of how you should make decisions in life um and i think that's pretty much what i've done although i've picked very disciplined and organized careers um, you know, they're very vigorous and require a lot of um, just day-to-day uh, discipline. But, I mean, I'm doing it because something felt right about it. Um, and I just, that's my approach to life. I think that, um, I, you know, if I meet a certain person and, you know, we hit it off and, you know, there's a good energy between us, that's probably going to lead to a friendship. Whereas, you know, if someone that you meet, you don't, necessarily uh you know jive with right away maybe that person and you um are not meant to be friends so you know in the same way i just keep sort of uh moving along my career path and my personal path always looking for fulfillment and um you know if i feel it i go further into it yeah so um 
Yeah, we'll be joined in a little bit by uh, another writer. Um, but for now, we'll just keep uh, the conversation going about kind of how your passions and such and uh, about um, how that fueled your career. So uh, let's talk a little bit more about um, your passions about culture, a different place in culture and such, and how you're able to bring that in your post, um, uh, maybe perhaps focusing more on the post, uh, or I can have, have it impressions it left on you. So, yeah. you know, I grew up, uh, again, I grew up in Staten Island, New York. Um, and New York City, as everyone knows, is, is full of culture and diversity. Um, so I think I'm very fortunate that as immigrants, my parents chose to move here. Um, because we ourselves were, um, you know, my parents are from India, so they brought a lot of their roots and culture, and I grew up with that. I grew up in a very tight community um, with them and their friends and, you know, going out to celebrate a lot of our heritage and things like uh, different holidays like Diwali, you know, but at the same time, I had a lot of other exposures being in New York City. Um, So I feel like I have really had a, an enriched childhood with all these uh, with all these experiences and different kinds of people and personality and culture and um, I think again that sort of helped me a lot it helped me with my survival in Iraq um, because I wasn't intimidated I wasn't intimidated by talking to you know an Iraqi soldier um, and actually one of the um, one of my colleagues mentioned that to me. He said, you know, you don't have a problem taking your stethoscope and putting in and touching, you know, an Iraqi or you know, any of the Middle Eastern um, people that come here. We had people working for the U.S. Army, too, working in the um, in the kitchen or in the laundromat, um, in the gym. And we also had uh, translators that were helping us. So they were at the bedside helping translate when it was an Iraqi soldier or police officer that came and injured. Um, so he... He mentioned that. He observed that. I didn't have a problem, and maybe it was because they were the similar um, skin color to me, um, you know, because I, I, I was a minority there. I, I think I was mostly surrounded by um, white, black, Puerto Rican, uh, but mostly white American. And so being an Indian female um, um, in Iraq was unusual. I was, I was definitely... Uh, you know, not the norm. And plus I was from a big city also. And I think a lot of the uh, people in the U.S. Army, a majority of them are from the South or from the Midwest. Um, So I already had a lot of that culture ingrained in me and a lot of the experiences from childhood that I think just helped me um, ease into an experience like that. And um, I wasn't shy. I always made friends very easily growing up um, because I was, you know, I was from a large public school and um, you know, we had just surrounded by really um, outgoing people. Again, different nationalities, ethnicities. So, um, and it, it, I just think it really helped me um, get through the military, even though at first it was a very daunting experience for me when I first uh, knew I was going to get deployed. Yeah. And uh, it's very interesting to think about how we're informed also uh, by um, the natural world and nature and how some of your things about the ideal place. Uh, we're just being joined now by our uh, guest co-host, uh, Claire Ben Winkle. Oh, good morning. Oh, good morning. Hang on. Uh, I got to turn on. And then, uh, yeah, and then uh, uh, we'll sit, allow them to set up one second. But uh, we'll take a quick moment. Um, but also I would say, I'll let you talk, Monica, just talk a little bit about how uh, your ideal and how um, this kind of thing and how... Uh, what you're looking towards, you know, talk a little bit about nature and 
in close to the mountains and such. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, I I think that I mean, Vijay, you had asked me previously, like what my ideal situation would be, um, like where I would live and what it would be like and who I would be and how I would feel. And I just, I mean, I love nature. Uh, I love the ocean. I love the mountains. Um, and I just think that, you know, a place like that where I can work and live in a serene environment. Um, <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> um, oh, I'm thinking more like the West Coast. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, that I feel like uh, gives me a lot of relaxation and I can think clearly in an environment like that. I mean, I can think clearly now, but I think that would just enhance enhance my thought process and clarity. Good, good. Um, so, so I just love nature. Let me just quickly introduce um, our, our uh, new guest. So uh, Helena Rowe is a formal assistant professor of pediatrics, uh, also a pediatrician, um, also was a pediatrician, has practiced and taught at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, the John Hopkins Hospital, and the Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh. She was born in um, Gwangyo, Korea, is that right? Gwangju. Gwangju, Gwangju, Korea, and raised and educated in Seoul, Korea, uh, Uganda, East Africa, and the United States. She entered doctorate in medicine in 1992 and a master's of fine arts in creative nonfiction in 2008. Her work has been published in Creative Nonfiction Journal, Slate Magazine, Crab Orchard Review, and Entropy. She is finishing her memoir, um, Leaving Medicine. You can find her online at HelenaRowe.com. So H-R-R-H-O. So Helena, uh, R-H-O.com. Welcome, welcome. Thank, Thank you. you so much for having me. Thank you. So we were talking a little bit about, uh, uh, with Monica, the first question, um, the first question that we gave was about medicine and our relationship with medicine. So why don't I give that question to you as well? Uh, how's your relationship with medicine as a career uh, changed over the years or how it started and how it kind of had evolved over the years? Yeah. Well, um, my father was a surgeon. So being a Korean American immigrant, I became a doctor. Yeah. Well, I call myself the idiot who listened. I have three <laughs> siblings, and yeah. I'm the only one who became a doctor. Yeah. So there was a lot of pressure. Um, I mean, you know, I'm Korean. I'm the model minority. <laughs> yeah. So I became a pediatrician, and then uh, I had a pretty bad car accident in 2003. And so it was either to get an MBA in hospital administration very boring, or pursue what uh, was my passion for a very long time, books and writing. And so I got my MFA. Yeah, interesting, interesting. Yes, Uh, so so, I left medicine. Yeah, so, and how, what was the, in other words, like the impetus to leave, the the kind of changing moment was possibly that, you know, your passion for or, or, or disdain for, was it more disdain for medicine or was it more a passion that drew you away? I don't think I would call it disdain. I mean, medicine was very difficult. Yeah. I mean, pediatrics is not, you know, all happy kids. Lollipops. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> it's not lollipops. Yeah. And actually, it's pretty grim. There's uh, lots of kids who are dying and uh, serious diseases. Um, I would say maybe the culmination of watching all of that. I mean, my career in medicine was pretty short. Uh 16 years, you know, it wasn't a 20-decade career. But um, there was a lot of uh, things that I saw when I was in training. I worked with uh, Jim Oleski, who's a 
pretty famous HIV um, pediatric researcher. Um, and he was my mentor in medical school. And I thought I would probably be an infectious disease expert and take care of kids with um, AIDS and HIV. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I went to medical school in the late 80s, early 90s, when uh, the AIDS epidemic was at, at its peak. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, watching all those kids die, it, watching kids suffer, I mean, it, it was uh, so difficult. And that's why, you know, started actually, my memoir started as a collection of essays. I had published one about birth as- asphyxia. I can't even talk. Birth asphyxia. Yeah. <laughs> Talking which, isn't necessary. It's only radio. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, um, which is basically um, lack of oxygen to the brain. Mm. And so uh, I was called to a delivery where um, there was a placental abruption where the placenta detaches and so the baby gets no oxygen. And uh, there was an emergency C-section, but you can only move so fast. And so he had not been without oxygen for, he had been without oxygen, I should say, for 20 minutes by the time he was delivered. And then I resuscitated him. Um, And five minutes after his resuscitation, he was having seizures, which is a a terrible indicator. Yeah, and he probably would have terrible um, brain damage. Mm. And um, I had taken care of kids like that, um, kids with MRCP, we call it um, mental retardation, um, cerebral palsy, because of such, you know, devastating lack of oxygen to their brain. Mm. And I knew what would happen to this baby and... It, it made me wonder, you know, what are we saving? Yeah. Um, and then it led me to write another essay about prematurity. I call it the price of prematurity because we were saving extreme premature babies, you know, 23 weeks pre- uh, premature, 25 weeks premature, um, when, you know, normal gestation is 40 weeks. So we are talking months and months before they're supposed to be born and the kind of, well circumstances that they're born into because um, they have such terrible lung disease. They have all kinds of problems, um, these ex-premature babies. And I actually think I had a patient who probably had juvenile Huntington's disease. Um, So anyway, pediatrics is not all happy. (laughs) Yeah. It's interesting you had this um, Mm -hmm. quote that... um, for your pre-interview questions, have courage and be kind. I think that was the quote, right? Yes. Uh, that, that really guided you through these <laughs> difficult and challenging uh, um, yes. times. Yeah, we talk a little bit about yeah. that and how, where does that oh come from? Oh, my God. Oh, yes. Yeah. Um, well, I think that um, I used to think uh, when I was getting my degree in writing that, I oh, my God, 20 years, you know, I should have been writing not uh, been a doctor. I've wasted all this time. And then I thought, actually, no, I needed to go through this process because it was important. Yeah. You know, not, not to mention it's given me material for a whole lifetime, but um, just what they taught me, those children. Um, they are the most brave, smartest, most amazing kids and people. I mean, human beings. Um, kind to their parents, kind to me, you know, a doctor in training. Mm-hmm. And just 
I, I was watching a remake of Kenneth Branagh's uh, movie, Cinderella, with Lily James and <laughs> Cinderella's mother. as She's on her deathbed, you know, uh, wants to give her advice to her daughter and says, uh, have courage and be kind. And I thought, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> My whole life. <laughs> you, Who knew that's the advice? You, you know the question that I want to ask you. Mm-hmm. What? Were you a successful doctor? <laughs> uh, thank you, Claire, for mentioning one of the most difficult <laughs> chapters in my memoir. What, what I mean is that um, as we, Helena and I, have been have been writing together for a while, um, you said that you had to go through this process. And I know that you also talk about the fact that the patients you've treated all have these stories and when you say you're writing, you've said to me in the past that as you write your memoir, you feel like you're writing their stories and you're inspired by them. Do you feel that perhaps success as a writer means that we take the experiences we've had before and turn them into stories that can become in and of themselves new successful lives and ways of speaking? Oh, absolutely. I am a big believer of what Joan Didion wrote in the White Album. We tell ourselves stories in order to live. Yes. And um, these children, their families, their stories matter. I was at first concerned that I was, you know, sort of co-opting their story, but they can write their story from their, you know, point of view. If well, they ever, I don't know that these to. stories really mm-hmm. get told very often. Yeah. Hence the hence the sort of outside um, misconception that pediatrics is like, oh, well, that's the ward where all the toys are, right? Yeah. So I, it <laughs> Which there seems, are. <laughs> right, but it seems, yeah. it seems that um, maybe these are stories that are too devastating to be for the people who are living them to tell them while they're living them. Like, I would assume that in those situations, they've got other things on their mind other than writing these things down. So maybe it was your job to be a witness. Yeah. Yes, I, I think that um, one of the things that Dr. Oleski showed me, the, my mentor, the HIV, um, I call him, you know, rock star, um, was how important it is to bear witness to our patients' lives because their lives matter. Yeah. And I guess I'm trying to bear a different kind of witness by writing. Yeah. Um, I hope I, I, I'm doing them justice. I'm constantly wondering did they really say that or you know because this is after all nonfiction. it's creative nonfiction, but it's nonfiction, and it has to be true i'm not a big fan of james fry um who's made up you know about his uh, drug addiction and um yeah million pieces yeah and he kind of invented or made up a lot of material that yes was not on the record or whatever. Yeah. Yes, apparently he only spent yeah. uh, a very limited amount of time in jail and he made it sound like it was six months, something yeah. like that. Yeah, many memoirists are, are guilty mm-hmm. of that, are just completely inventing stuff and not staying to any kind of truth at all, yeah. I, I, I think that's wrong. Appeal. Yeah, 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 I just think that's wrong. I mean, you have some leeway in what was, you know, your memory of a conversation and what you what was said during that conversation and the the meaning of that conversation. Yeah. Uh, but you can't make up encounters or lengthen the time you spent in jail or... Yeah. <laughs> it depends, though, upon what liberties you're taking. Well, so you, now now yeah. we get into a territory that, that I, I won't 
veer too far, but the, the nature of memory is that even when we think we're telling the truth, even when we think we're being accurate, um, it's an optical illusion. Mm. And in it, as a, a poet um, who essentially lies her way to the truth most oh, yeah. of the time, um, I think there are different schools of thought on that. And I, I think that one of the biggest things is when, when we're telling other people's stories, when other people become a part of our stories, we kind of just need to know where their stories stop and ours begin and respect the boundaries of what is ours to create and what is ours to um, simply record and present. Yeah. Oh, um, absolutely. Yeah. I, I But I think that there's a difference between saying my 24 hours in jail felt like six months. Right. Uh, and saying that it was six months. Yeah, yeah I'm there, definitely... You can actually look up your jail time. You yeah. Know? And and those kinds of details of uh, actual facts that you can check, I, mm. I, I don't think that you, sh- you could lie about those things. But yeah. absolutely. I mean, there's, you know, our experience mm-hmm. is so unique to ourselves that I'm sure, I mean, i am actually written a chapter about my sisters. I'm sure all three of them will take issue <laughs> with what they think transpired, you know, that day. <laughs> but the, it's my truth. You yeah. Know? And, and we're all trying to get to truth. Yeah. And also, um, I would just say on that discussion, that as long as you're kind of upfront about the fact that you know, this it, is poetry. This is some kind of interpretation. Or oh, I'm always upfront kind of about yeah. lying. But Ooh. some people, I think, are yeah. Some people are very uh, so now you don't trust me. Interpretive right? about it. Yeah. I mean, that's the whole so, point of creative nonfiction. Exactly. Right? Yeah. You're creating. You're taking yeah. the truth and you're exaggerating it. Yeah, I mean, there's the whole names have been changed to protect the innocent. Yeah. Um, some of the details. I, I think all it takes is a note saying some of the details in here have been sure. been modified to make the point of the characters who live in the pages rather than the characters who walked the earth. Yeah. But so um, what can I, I'm sorry, we, we came in at the mercy of of lift. Yeah. Uh, we came in late. Can can. Um, sorry. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, any what is your take on on this whole idea of writing writing stories, and how has medicine influenced you as a as a writer or storyteller? Uh, I mean, I've always loved I loved writing before I think I even discovered medicine as a passion. So I was writing like poetry in like the second grade, and I remember I won some award, and I just loved it. And a part of me wish I, and I, I was an English major in college, but part of me wish um, I just delved into it more. Um, although I don't know, maybe. Maybe some people are just better at that. I, I really need to just do one thing and one thing well at a time. But um, now I'm at a point in my life where I do want to go back to it and I want to um, get better at it, uh, you know, because I think that I've become a little rough around the edges over the past few years just being focused on pediatrics. Um, but I do want to say I think there's something very special about um, being in medicine and writing about it um, because you know, it's one thing to write about what you see when you're a non-medical person, but when you're actually seeing it and treating it, um, like well, you were saying, I just think it's, ama- I mean, and it's amazing because you can, you were there doing it and now you're describing it. And that's something that a lot of people can really learn from that don't have that exposure. Oh, absolutely. And I think that what's uh, been very interesting to me about writing about my experiences. Well, you know, I also have the advantage of uh, hindsight and perspective now because it's been many years. But um, going through that process and 
and thinking to myself, what actually did happen? What did everybody say? What did I feel? And I think the hardest thing was, what did I feel? Do you um, find that in your writing? I find that I'm working on that. I'm finding I'm, you know, I have these uh, chapters, these few chapters I wrote about my Iraq experience. And um, I had so much, I know I had so much feeling, but I was also working really hard. So now I can go back and reflect on what I took away from that experience personally, not just professionally. Um, and so, yeah, it does make it, it's nice to be able to reflect. I'm about 10 years out from that deployment now. So I think I can really sit down when I make carve out the time to do that. And I can really, um, really probably come up with some mark- remarkable ex- memories and feelings. Um, you were in Iraq as a pediatrician. Yes. Can you talk about that? Yeah. Yeah, we started a little bit about it, but you can go into some stories maybe uh, into some significant uh, moments that really inform uh, the memoir. Really, what is if you talk a little bit about the thesis of the memoir and how what kind of um, driving lessons or or you talked a little bit about how it informed you as a professional as well as personally. Yeah, I mean, I was that was right out of residency, so it was my really was my first job out of residency was working your first attending job, my first attending job. Yes, working, um, coming out of a pediatric residency in New Jersey. Um, and so I kind of was thrown out there and it was a lot to take in. But, um, you, you know, it just helped me like grow as a person. I think it took what normal would be a maturity of over 10 years for a human being. I had to like squeeze in in just a couple of years because I was just constantly getting, you know, my feet into new things. So who were your patients in Iraq? So in Iraq, I was telling everyone earlier, it was uh, mostly the Iraqi coalition forces, so the Iraqi police and the army that the United States was helping stabilize because, you know, they were like in the middle of their own civil war. Right. Uh, but you weren't, you were a pediatrician, you are a pediatrician. Yes. So you were taking care of the children or the actual adults? No, the adults, mostly the adults. And I was doing your basic ABCs, airway, breathing, circulation, you know, the triaging, stabilizing, doing some... So you were actually doing ER, trauma kind of things. Correct. And I wasn't alone, right? So I had a team. There was a team of us. So we had, you know, nursing and PAs. But more importantly, we had um, internal medicine doctors, family practice doctors, and ER physicians. So we were all working together. Yes, but as a pediatrician, I mean, I'm I'm trying to think back to my training. It's all kids, right? You just come out of residency. You've spent three years treating children, just children. You've forgotten about the adult world. And now you are thrown back in, and especially in in that kind of circumstance. Did you ever see children in in those? I saw probably about ten cases of children that were um, that were shot. Actually, that were unfortunately caught in the crossfire. Um, I saw a few burns because you know they do a lot of cooking with the oil, and so some of the mothers and kids that would come in would come in with pretty severe burns from the oil that splashed on them. But otherwise, it was um, gunshot wounds um, through the head. And it's amazing. You talk about stuffed animals. I remember one specific case where a girl was like four years old. and um, The choice in the words. She she was shot in the head on the side. So she was awake, alert, active. And all we did was put a few stuffed animals in front of her, you know, while we were evaluating her and treating her. And she was happy. Like, she had no idea what just happened. I mean, that's the one thing I love about pediatrics. I mean, we see the gruesome side. We see the kids that, you know, are suffering or have cancer. Um, but on the flip side, which is my work, I usually see a lot of out kids in the outpatient setting. And I see the kids who are happy and, 
and they're resilient. So when they're sick, even with something um, as devastating as leukemia, they don't realize what they have and their um, healing rates are much better than the adults. So they go into remission, um, you know, much more often than an adult would. So that's why I do love pediatrics because I remember all the happy, you know, a lot of those happy faces. (laughs) I I do miss those. Actually, the thing that I miss the most about pediatrics and having left the practice is kids, is the kids. Um, the administration, sometimes the parents. I, I, I could I could leave, but the kids. The kids are great. Yeah. <laughs> sometimes the parents can be difficult. Yes. Do you have any stories about particularly difficult parents? Um or anything uh or just anything that threw a wrench in you trying to do your work or what what you thought you signed on to as a doctor? Um well currently I see a lot of complicated kids. Um, even though it's in an outpatient office-based setting, I see a lot of foster care kids and a lot of kids who um, have been born premature, who have autism um, and cerebral palsy. And I know one of my patients was a little bit older and she didn't have any of these things. Um, but her mom, you know, was had four kids and she had two other kids who had a lot of more health problems like severe asthma. And um, one had like a vascular formation around her neck that caused her like a lifelong um, history of uh, breathing problems and so she had to be closely followed so with this fourth kid who was the oldest she was generally healthy but this mom because she's so overwhelmed with her other kids she was very persistent with me and so she's like my kid needs um, you know a pull-ups she's always like bedwetting at night and some kids bedwet because they're stressed this was a teenager that was still bedwetting because obviously she had a lot of social factors that were causing her a lot of stress Um, And so I helped her and I gave, I, you know, wrote the prescription for the pull-ups, the diapers. I even gave her some chucks, you know, some of the mats that we have in the office setting. And I let her take some home. But somehow she still wanted more. And I remember her calling me that evening. Can you still write me a script for this other kind of pull-up? And I mean, I just, I kind of just had to like tell her like, you know, you're too much. And she didn't like that. Um, and I just remember, you know, those kinds of situations are a little difficult to deal with when you ha- when you want to help a parent and then you come across as the bad person when you're trying to tell them that, you know, there needs to be a boundary. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, uh, I remember a patient who um, had ADHD, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, and uh, his father called me every week about his medications and I would have the same talk with him every week and then he would be not happy with that and so he would come and make an appointment hmm. uh, you know we call them acute visits um, acute visits are for you know fever colds um, and this was a long-standing problem and yet he would keep making these visits and uh, eventually the entire office knew <laughs> When this father called and left a message and I would call him back and he'd make another appointment and we'd have the same conversation. And it's, I, I think, I think now with hindsight and perspective, I should have been more straightforward with him. Um, he, he did not want to accept his son's diagnosis. I, I see that now. I think a lot of parents have this process of grief that, um, can manifest in different ways and instead of reiterating the same thing the same way I wish I had directly addressed his 
you know, inability um, to deal with this diagnosis. I mm. wish I had said, are you going through grief? Well, uh, but there's mm-hmm. also sort of a, a culture now where we think like, oh, we'll fix it. Medicine will fix it. Medicine can do so much. And there are so many things that can be treated and quote unquote fixed. But especially the kinds of um, the the problems that you can't see. You know, the things uh, when we talk about any kind of uh, mental illness or any, ki- any kind of behavioral problem, right. um, I think mm-hmm. people just don't understand why why there can't just be like a pill that will fix it and make them just like everybody else. And sometimes we look so closely at these things that we, we fail to see that, well, everybody's different and everybody has, has their challenges in life and you can't just make your kid the way you want your kid to be. You know, yeah. and and I think and that, the doctor can't either. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and uh, and one of the things that they, they talk about in pediatrics is that parents, when they have a child who has you know a serious uh, problem, whether it be mental illness or a physical problem, they have to go through the process of grieving that the child that they thought that they would have. Mm-hmm. And I think this father, I mean. Oh, the patient's name who I can't mention. Uh, I, I almost blurted his name out. Uh, had other problems besides ADHD. He mm. had behavioral problems at school. He also, um, I mean, according to the psychiatrist, had uh, another personality disorder. And so he really was a very complicated patient. And the psychiatrist was involved. But I was the only one that he could reach. His parent, His father could reach. On a, on a weekly, you know, sometimes I would call, get daily calls from him. And my job was to sort of hold his hand, you know, mm-hmm. as his um, son's doctor. But I now look back on it, you know, with over 10 years of perspective and think. I, I think that his father also needed well, is, some kind of ask, you know, is intervention. There a, is there a push or has, has there been more of a push lately? Um, I used to work at the Hunter College Autism Lab. And um, I currently am, am a therapist. Um, is there a push to get the uh, the family of children going through these um, traumatic uh, situations? Is is there more of a push to get help for the family members, the people who? I hope so. Um, but yeah. this was, you know, fourteen years ago. Mm-hmm. Well, now we still it's still mostly centered around the child. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, when a counselor is with the child, they're taking into account the parent. Um, I mean they're not treating the parent, but they're going to, you know, treat the parent and the child in the sense that, you know, they're talking to both of them in the same room and um they're giving advice to the parent on how to handle the child. Mm-hmm. Um and they may like if I if I was sometimes as a doctor I tell the parents maybe you should you know, take a little break. Maybe if there's some other caretaker in the home that can take the child for a little bit, maybe that'll give you some fresh air, you know, to go and maybe exercise. Or or see yeah. a therapist who you can talk to sure. without the child in the room. They sure. say about that um, too. treating the patient just as much as you treat the illness. So you're treating the, the patient the total way in which the patient expresses themselves. A bit more or, holistic. Yeah, a little holistic. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that's the general yeah. trend of medicine now yeah. is to treat everything, approach it from a holistic standpoint. Yeah. Oh, good. But, so, you know, well, things have changed. I want, I did want to um, mention, you know, had you told that father, uh, in, in, like you said, in a very direct way about the diagnosis for his son, do you think that would have made a difference or it would have, he may have even reacted, um, you know, worse, don't you think? Yeah. Well, I, I, because it went on for months. 
but he might have just stopped calling. I mean, he in those situations, yeah, know, he, yeah. sometimes sometimes um, people, especially with with uh, behavioral issues, shop around for the person who tells them what they want to hear. Yeah. So I know there's there's just a lot of denial about it, and so, um, it, I mean, with the the parents of some of the uh, autistic kids, um, in terms, uh, and it was it was devastating because we were running studies at just looking at um, shared attention and language. And these were some of them were, were very low functioning children, but you could just tell that the parents bringing them to this study and it was mostly just like something for the kid to do. Like it wasn't really a treatment program. It was a study. Um, but the parents would come in like really hopeful and we we would tell them like this isn't this isn't treatment. This is just a study. We hope to you know learn more about this. But you could tell that no matter what they were thinking that this. Oh, this is still something we can fix. Mm-hmm. And and I, it it. Absolutely. It, yeah. uh, it's absolutely heartbreaking. I mean, I think that's one of the reasons I had to leave yeah. the practice of pediatrics. I, I found it too heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. So why, as we start to um, reach our last 10 minutes, um, why don't we talk a little bit about how uh, the writers you've read, how they help shape or mold uh, the way in which you present your experiences, the way in which you package, you know, you know, the, the tradition or lineage you're coming from as writers. Um and how that helps you guide you navigate these memories and yeah why don't we start with plena well i mean you know i I would have to echo uh the fact that i love books i can't remember a time i didn't love books and when um i discovered a whole cache of books in the back of the garage when i lived in kampala uganda by the left by the british expatriate who used to live in this house before me and I learned to read. I, re- I read everything. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I wanted to be an English major. I'm really jealous of you. <laughs> uh, yeah. I did not. It, it was uh, my Korean parents were completely against the idea. But I, I loved uh, 18th century British literature. I think primarily because of the Brontes, yeah. Charlotte and Emily. And you mentioned um, detective stories, I think, were a big influence on you. Uh, oh, yeah. when I started reading, I yeah. started with ladybird books, you know, uh-huh. because I was six. And um, and then uh, The the Secret Seven by Enid Blyton, you know, yeah. she was an old British uh, writer. And uh, I still love detective uh, and uh, detective novels to this day. P.D. James, I'm so upset she's dead because she's one of my favorite detective writers. Um, but I read indiscriminately you know yeah. as a child i read everything and um but it i think it was the 18th century british um novelists like jane austen and the brontes not so much charles dickens unfortunately he yeah. was he's a little too long-winded for me people have told <laughs> me i don't know pay by the word exactly yeah. <laughs> and i think though i you wish know, i could get paid by the word yeah. i would have so much money <laughs> <laughs> And I think that, you know, like um, when I was 17, I read Ernest Hemingway, who I continue to have a very difficult relationship with, complicated. He's yeah. responsible for writing the what I consider one of the worst novels in the world. And I'm sure I'm going to get a lot, lot of hate for this. But, you know, The Sun Also Rises. Hated that book. But I absolutely adore and still love The Old Man and the Sea. I think that oh, was yeah. one of the most formative books for me yeah. uh, in terms of as a writer. Um, and in... I think because I was always reading, I came across finally women writers more. I mean, Joan Didion is a huge influence on me. I love her essays. She's a a master. 
And she's actually really good at uh, memoir. I mean, the year of magical thinking is, uh, I don't know, I, I have, I've lost words. I'm a writer. <laughs> <laughs> so it, I, I can't keep using amazing, but yeah. um, it, it is, I think, a seminal book on, on how to write uh, a memoir. Um, an ama- amazing lesson. Um, Maxine Hong Kingston. Um, I think I, I'm reading more writers of color. Um, yeah, well, anyway, let me go yes. to Monica just for a few words on kind of where you're coming from reading wise or where lineage or what kind of influence you've had. Or if there's one thing you wish you had written. That's yeah, a good, good that's, that's a good one. Yeah. yeah. If, a memoir, any, or any, any, any kind of genre. Oh, yeah. I'm, I mean, I'm working on my memoir, creative yeah. nonfiction right now. And I have a whole list of memoirs um, from my classes that I'm still working through. Um, I mean, in terms of writing in general, what I can remember um, from high school and college um, was I loved I loved the early uh, American literature, too. And I loved Jane Austen. Um, but I liked Sandra Cisneros. I discovered her in college and she had such a magical way. It's, the genre is actually called magical realism. And it's so descriptive and so vivid and colorful. And, and that's the kind of writing that I enjoy. Um, so, I mean, you can, I can do that with poetry. I don't think I can do that with memoir writing. Yes, you can. <laughs> yeah, sure, sure. Yeah. <laughs> I, know, I know a workshop to... where you can practice that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. The, the, this is a plug for the Rockaway Writers Workshop. Yeah. <laughs> I, um, exactly, exactly. I, uh, I've been me. I have to pick. I still haven't read Breath into Air yet. I want to read that. Um, but The Glass Castle was awesome. I know that's a really good Teaching, yeah, that's you an know, amazing. That's one. an amazing yeah. memoir. Yeah. Jeanette Wall. Yeah, yep. good. Mm-hmm. So, um, any other closing thoughts? Or I'll start the process of. I, I always, any? yeah, I always like to ask any advice for writers. Yeah, that's a good idea. Any yeah, writers. any advice or even other doctors if you want to keep it more broad. <laughs> but go ahead. Yeah. What do you prescribe for yeah. writers nowadays? Yeah. <laughs> My yeah. prescription for writers, whether you are a doctor or. A musician or whatever is to write, is to write. Um, a writer, uh, a writer that I really admire, John Dufresne, a fiction writer, once said that the most important thing about being a writer is to get your ass in the chair. Get your ass in the chair because then you can write. That's my word of advice. I would just repeat John Dufresne's advice. Uh, a page a day is, um, is I think, a good piece of advice. If you can just, you know, it can be so overwhelming. And if you could just sit down and discipline yourself and, you know, just basically write a page a day, you can end up with a 365-page book by the end of the year. Excellent. Excellent, excellent. So uh, thank you so much for being here. This is Radio Free Brooklyn, um, uh, the Truth to Power show. Ready for Brooklyn is a uh, 501c3 nonprofit organization whose mission is to provide a free and open platform for our community and promote media literacy, uh, education, and free expression. We rely primarily on donations from listeners like you to help support our mission. We invite you to make a one-time donation or monthly pledge at readyforbrooklyn.org slash donate. Every cent helps us to continue to stay on air. So please support independent community radio by pledging whatever you can afford. All contributions are tax-deductible. The full extent of the law, again, that's readyforbrooklyn.org slash donate. Um, Ready for Brooklyn is proud to announce that they're going to be launching a after-school program for local teenagers in 2019 to learn media literacy through media making using a hands-on approach guided by local professionals. If you'd be interested in participating or donating to this program, 
please go to readyforbrooklyn.org slash after school. And remember, all t- donations are tax deductible. Um, also, uh, if you listen to Ready for Brooklyn while you're in front of your computer, please consider downloading our free mobile app for iPhone and Android. Um, available in the App Store for iPhone or Google Play Store for the Android. So um, I thought I'll play out uh, as we start to, uh, to go out. Uh, I'll play out uh, Bjork's song, Human Behavior, which uh, <laughs> I'm, something I've been getting into Bjork, so I, I thought I'll play that and uh, we'll say uh, so long to everyone. Thank yes, you. thank you very thank much you. for having us, Vijay. Thank you, thank you. Thank you. Goodbye, good morning, have a good week. <laughs>